Well, I wanted to um, start this morning by just taking a moment to say thank you. Uh, Thanksgiving is kind of a new tradition for me. I'm still kind of getting used to the the calendar and the amazing events that happen um, here in November and December. But um, Laura and I were reflecting this week um, just with an incredible sense of thankfulness um, for you all. Uh, To plant a church uh, is a pretty big, complicated deal. And uh, believe it or not, Vintage has still only been around for two and a half years here on this side of town. Um, And we were just talking this week about how amazingly blessed we are by the incredible ways that you guys partner with us to build God's kingdom. It's amazing to see all that's happening in our community. Something else I've learned uh, over the last years is I've learned that this is a very significant Sunday um, because Thanksgiving uh, arrives, Thursday happens, Black Friday happens, which is now known because of England's dreadful performance in the World Cup, and... and (laughs) And then suddenly all things change, don't they? Saturday arrives and Christmas, right? Christmas. Um, William and I uh, made the mistake of going down to Home Depot on Saturday, not because we were trying to buy a Christmas tree, but because we just needed some things. And it was like... I, like the end of the world had arrived. It was just absolutely crazy. Um, anybody go out on Saturday and get their Christmas tree already? Be honest, it's okay, no shame. Um, the, vintage, the vintage pastors from Santa Monica both were straight in there saying Saturday morning, trees up. Um, it, it's like a big deal, isn't it? Suddenly our focus goes from Thanksgiving and family into Christmas mode. And I guess over the next weeks, you'll have all these different traditions, these different things that you will do to get ready for Christmas. Um, anybody got a particular particular December getting ready for Christmas tradition that you do in your house? Shout it out if you do. None? I don't, I (laughs) fail to believe that's true. Movies, Christmas movies, okay, anything else? Christmas lights, yeah. It's getting such a big deal that all around my neighborhood, there are these signs up, we'll put your Christmas lights up for you if you pay us a large amount of money. It's like, okay, whole industry around Christmas lights. Anything else? Advent calendar, excellent. Chocolate or not? No chocolate. Chocolate, obviously, okay. No debate. And anything else? One more. Oh, Elf on the Shelf. Yeah, anyone else into Elf on the Shelf? That's basically this thing where you convince your children to behave properly by telling them there's an elf watching every action. And if they don't behave, Santa's not coming. It's a genius thing. It's, it's ge- not really. We, we have all these different moments, don't we, to get ready. Um, but as Sam told us a minute ago, in the global church's calendar, this period of December is actually not called Christmas, surprisingly. It's actually called Advent. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians around the world, and they'll be doing it this Advent as well, will use December to get ready for Christmas. But it's not historically about getting the turkey bought or getting the tree up or getting the lights done or getting the Christmas movies on. It's actually about us. It's about preparing our hearts. It's about preparing our lives for the coming of Jesus. Advent is this season where we look not only backwards to the fact that people were waiting for Jesus for thousands of years, but also where we look forward to the time when Jesus will come one day. There's this idea of yearning, this idea of longing, this idea of hoping for things that aren't yet here. And that is exactly how people felt on earth two and a half thousand years ago as they waited for Jesus to come. 
If you know a little bit about the history, if you've ever read all the way through the Bible from the old bit to the new bit, you know, it starts in, in Genesis chapter one with this idea of God creating a world. That out of his love, out of his goodness, out of his beauty, he births stars, universes, galaxies. And right in the heart of it, he, he births earth as this home for his children, his very prized possession made in his image. And he says to those first human beings, Adam and Eve, he says, I love you. I am for you. I've got this amazing adventure called life that we're going to do together. I'm going to be with you along the way. I've got like animals for you to see. I've got plants for you to see. I've made mountains. I've made rivers. This is just going to be incredible. But because it's a story of love, God also says to to Adam and Eve, like, you can choose. You can choose to love me and be in my family, or you can choose to reject me and walk away. And sadly, what we see actually in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, we see this moment where the devil, the evil one, enters in and tricks Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve rebel and turn away from God. And actually, they choose not to listen to God, not to live under his rules and his life, but instead to walk away. And then we see in Genesis 3, 4, 5, we carry on, we see how brokenness, We see how evil, we see how darkness enters into the world. And there's this sort of idea as you go through the Old Testament of of two stories at work. One is a story of God continually saying to his children, like, I love you. I love you. Come back. Come back to be part of my family. Come back to be in my story. But on the other side, you see this like story of, of like God's people continually going, actually, we're good. Like, we're okay. We're going to do this, this thing on their own. And the cycle just goes round. If you think about the story of Moses, Moses is sent by God to rescue his people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And so they come out and toward the promised land. And God says to Moses, come up the mountain because I'm going to give the family rules, the Ten Commandments. And so Moses goes up the mountain. By the time Moses has got back down the mountain, the people have decided, oh yeah, actually we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna worship something else. And they make this golden statue, this golden calf called Baal, and they worship it. And over and over again, like this, this sense of rebellion, this sense of turning away, and God's people get themselves into slavery. They get themselves into captivity. They get themselves into brokenness as they continue to walk away from God. And over and over again, out of that place, they call back to God and they're like, we're sorry. Like, we're sorry. We messed it up. Will you let us back? And over and over again, God says, yes, come on, come on back. And then it goes wrong again. And it goes wrong again. Until after like thousands of years of this story, there is this reality that things are really broken. In fact, every time the cycle repeats, things get more broken until there is just darkness. There's darkness on the earth. There's darkness in the human condition. But even even in the midst of this incredible brokenness, there is this sort of, this little glimmer, like this little hope that one day God will change things properly and forever. And it's, it's into that hope, into that idea that these prophets speak. And the prophets uh, come on one hand to tell the people, come back, like turn from what you've been doing. But they also come with this glimmer of what is to come. And we're just going to read what one of the prophets has to say, like hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And if you've got your Bibles, it's in Isaiah chapter 9. 
studying in verse 1. It will be up on the screens, um, or you can get it in your Bibles. Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then elsewhere, Isaiah says these words, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. And he also says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news and proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. The salvation of our God is near. Jeremiah says it too, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David, a a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In fact, if you look at the work of the prophets, over 450 times they make reference to a Messiah. They make reference, hundreds and hundreds of years before he comes to the planet, they talk about the coming of one king, a king who will end darkness, a king who will usher in a new kingdom where there is salvation. And these seeds are planted in like the darkness, like a, almost like seeds in a winter field. And they, they lie there, giving this idea of what is to come for, for actually hundreds of years. In fact, 400 years That's even longer than a global pandemic. 400 years they sit waiting in the silence, in the darkness. Some of them in captivity, some of them in slavery, some of them just living with this idea of yearning for hope, looking for the Savior to come. Uh, And I wonder, um, I wonder this Advent, I wonder what it is that you are yearning for. What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? Maybe it's, it's things that are in, internal to you. Like if only, 
You know, my life was to change. If I could see an end to the financial issues I have or the relationship issues I have or the health issues that I have, if only then it would be okay. Or maybe like those Israelites, we look out at the world around us and we say, God, if only there was an end to mass shootings. If only there was an end to climate change. If only there was an end to political turmoil. If only we could see our economy go into a good spot, then it would be okay. I imagine deep down we've probably all got something that we yearn and long to see change. And in the yearning, I suppose for many of us, we have this idea of hope. And hope is a beautiful, fragile, viciously important concept. Emil Brunner says, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. G.K. Chesterton Chesterton says, hope is the power of being cheerful in circumstances, which we know to be desperate. Hope is so vital. Um, In the Second World War, um, a guy called Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychotherapist. And he was imprisoned by the Nazis along with his whole family and put into the concentration camps. During the war, he lost his father, his mother, his brother, and his wife, who were all died at the hands of the Nazis. In fact, only he and his sister survived. But being a psychotherapist, he used some of the time that he had when he was imprisoned to observe the behavior of particularly the men in the concentration camps. And he found that when people were faced with particularly hard conditions, they responded in one of four ways. And he wrote uh, what he found in 1946 in his book called Man's Search for Meaning. He said the first group, when they were confronted with torture, when they were confronted with hardship and darkness, they would just give up. They would lose hope. They would be the first to die, not because they had a lack of food or a lack of medicine, but actually because they would simply lose the will to survive, lose the will to, to, to live. So no threat of beatings, no threat of hardship would actually make any difference in their lives because they would just basically said, we're done from this point onwards. I wonder um, if there's just a few of us who might know what it looks like to lose hope. Maybe even as we, we look forward to Christmas, we look at this season, we actually look out at our families or we look at our situation or we look at our bank accounts, we look at our health and we think, well, it's kind of all we've got really. It's not going to get any better It's probably just going to be like this for now on. It's easy to lose hope. Viktor Frankl said that there was a second group. And these guys didn't lose hope. In fact, they became like dog-eat-dog, brutal, vicious, angry, and cruel in order to survive. So that they attacked other inmates. They would do anything that they needed to do to snitch on their family or their friends in order that they would be the people chosen to survive and make it through. They were bitter. They were cynical. I wonder how easy is it for us in our hardships to feel that same kind of way. The third group, um, they were a little bit different because they had uh, what Viktor Frankl described as a false hope. They looked at the world outside and they were like, don't worry, everyone. It's going to be better tomorrow. Like the the allied troops are coming. We're going to be out of here. We're going to be back to our old jobs. We're going to be back to our old houses. Our families are going to be fine. Our finances are going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. But what Viktor Frankl noticed was that it only took a few days before those people realized that actually it wasn't coming true. 
And that false hope that they held actually led them to a deeper depression than even any of the other groups because they would have lost any sense that it was going to work out. I wonder how easy it is for us to have false hopes in things. When, when I'm skinny, everything will be all right. It's not working for me. When I get fit, when my bank balance is properly black and my credit card debt's gone and my student loan's gone, then it's going to be okay. When I find the person of my dream or we look out of the world, oh, when we get a new government or when our economy sorts itself out or when the whole world is better, like then it's going to be okay. Maybe if we just get a good plan together, then it'll be okay. But of course, you don't have to live for very long, do you? Before you realize that actually, for most of us anyway, our bodies and our looks are not improving. <laughs> they might actually be getting a little older every year. That actually our finances are fragile and they might, may or may not work out for us. We realize sooner or later that actually we're not quite as in control of the world as we thought we were. The famous um, heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Mike Tyson said, everybody thinks they're in control and everybody thinks they've got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> Sooner or later, we realize we're just not as in control as we thought and we need something greater. We need something sturdier. We need something to put our hope in. And that's exactly what Viktor Frankl found in a final group, the fourth group. He found this small little group of people in the concentration camp who actually were buoyant, even though they were in great suffering. They didn't give up. They didn't turn brutal. They weren't cynical. In fact, they were hopeful. And this is what he wrote in his book. He said, life in a concentration camp exposes your soul's foundations. Only a few of the prisoners were able to keep their inner liberty and inner strength. Life only has meaning in any circumstance if we have a hope that neither suffering nor circumstances nor death itself cannot, can destroy. A hope in God. That is exactly what Viktor Frankl found to be true in the Jewish concentration camps, that you need something bigger to build your life around. And he found that it was only God who worked. In fact, I don't know if you saw this stat, but during the, during the global pandemic in 2020, um, they did a massive great survey of the United States to find out like, who was struggling with their mental health, who was improving their mental health, what the different conditions were for different groups of people. And they only actually managed to find one positive contributing factor toward positive mental health in the United States in 2020 in the middle of the great, great pandemic. You know what it was? Those who had a hope in God those who worshipped with other people regularly. That was it. There was no other group that showed positive increases in their mental health. We need something greater. And it's actually in Advent that we find the greater story of hope. And I think there's three beautiful reasons why I just love Advent so much, because it is a story of hope. And the first is this. In Advent, we have real hope because God loves us. I don't know if you know that this morning. God loves you. I mean, he really does. Some of you maybe came this morning and you're like questioning that fact. You're wondering if he's real. But Advent tells us that God loves us so much. 1 John says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Yet to all who did receive him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What I find amazing about the Advent story is that even after millennia of brokenness, even after sin, even after darkness, even after continually turning their back on God, God did not turn his back on the world. He didn't walk away. I think if it had been me, I'd have been probably like, I think I'll just go and find a new planet now. We'll go do something else. But yet God did not. Rather, he sent his son into the darkness, into the brokenness. As famously John 3 says, for God so loved the world, which is all of us, by the way, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's actually in the Advent season that we see that glimmer of the coming of hope of Jesus Christ, who brings real hope into a real world, which still seems a little bit broken today. And even though sometimes we still feel alone, even though we sometimes feel a little bit broken, even though it feels a little bit dark and we're not sure what's really going on out there, actually we know what the answer can't be. The answer can't be that God doesn't love us. Sorry, that's a lot of negatives. The answer has to be that God loves us. It has to be. Why else? Why else bother to go through all that he went through to rescue and save us and send his son if he did not love us that much? And I want you to know this morning, whoever you are, I don't know all your stories. I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know how you view yourselves. But I want you to know that God loves you deeply and passionately. In every circumstance, you are loved. In every circumstance, you are known. You are invited to be a child of God and to have your father as God himself because he loves you. Advent speaks of an incredible love. But also uh, we find that we can have real hope because it's not just that God once loved us, but it's actually that God is with us even today. One of the words we'll sing in our Christmas carols, we'll use it in our talks, we'll say it in our prayers, is the word Emmanuel. It's maybe my favorite word from the Advent and Christmas season because it's literally this, God with us. God, as Eugene Peterson says, stepped in, moved into the neighborhood, made his dwelling amongst us through Christmas. And it's an incredible thing of hope. I I love it. The word Jesus became flesh, moved in. It wasn't just some nice prophet who said some good things that were morally helpful to us or a sad man who was crucified on a cross. No, it was God who took on hair and skin and flesh and went through all of the mess and all of the darkness and all of the longing and all the brokenness that we all face. And he did it because he loved us to be with us. And I love in Advent, we we not only look back to the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and we don't even just look forward to the fact that in in some time in the future, Jesus will come again to finish what he started, but we recognize that even now, Even now, by the Holy Spirit, God has sent himself to be with us. And sometimes we feel it. Like sometimes we know it. Sometimes we can experience it and worship. We can see it on mountaintops. We have really good days and we're like, God, you did it. And sometimes we don't. (laughs) And sometimes we think we're on our own. But the promise of Advent is, is that God is with you. He's with you today. 
Whatever you've been through this week, whatever you're going to go through next week, whatever the next month is going to hold for you, God is right there alongside you. It's why Jesus dares to say in Matthew 6, these words which seem really harsh, do not worry. (laughs) What are you talking about, Jesus? Do not worry. Do not worry, Jesus says. Look, he says, at the birds in the sky. Look at the flowers in the field. They don't worry. They're okay, because how much do I care and look after those? And if I look after them, how much will I look after you, my children, those who I loved, those who I gave everything to be with? I will look after you, says Jesus. And then thirdly, I think we can have real hope in Advent. We can have real hope in life because we know that God actually has a plan. (laughs) He actually has a purpose and he actually knows what he's doing. Advent tells us that amazingly, darkness was not the end of the story. Brokenness was not the end of the story. Sin was not the end of the story, that God was working, that God was planning, even though they couldn't see it, even though they waited for 400 years, even though today we wait and we look at things and we're like, it's still a bit broken, God. The promise is that God is always working, working out his plans, working out his purposes, working out his hope on the world. And not just that he's doing it, but actually that he's invited us into it. Like we are invited into the story of God. We are invited to play our part in the redeeming, healing, beautifying purposes of God on the world, in the world. And it's an incredible purpose. It's an incredible invitation. It means that even as we look out in our own lives, even as we look out in our streets, even as we look out in our world and we go, it's broken. And God says, don't worry, we're going to fix it. Even if it seems empty, he creates. Even if it seems dead, he brings things back to life. Even if it seems too dark, he brings the light. And he equips us by his Holy Spirit with power and authority to see the world changed. Jürgen Moltmann, one of the greatest theologians of the last couple of centuries, he says this, in every situation we find ourselves in, God has a purpose for us to press into an alternative future, light into the darkness, the kingdom of God to break in, to pull slowly the future kingdom into the present. The promise is that God is bringing his kingdom to bear on the earth. That's why Isaiah, that Dan read, prophetically says, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end because he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. That's the promise. That's the promise. And I know, um, and you know, that that doesn't mean that it's always really easy to live in this moment. I think we live in this in-between space, don't we? Jesus came and he started the most astonishing rescue mission the world's ever seen. And he will come again one day and he will finish that astonishing rescue mission. And right now we're in the middle of it. And that's quite tricky. It's like a liminal space. It's a now and it's a not yet. And one of the best and most helpful pictures I've ever heard of it was actually this description. In um, on June the 6th, 1944, 
D-Day marked the definitive battle in the Second World War. US troops, British troops, French troops inflicted on Hitler the most significant and definitive victory of the Second World War. From that moment on, Hitler was in retreat. The end of war was in sight. Everybody knew what was going to happen next. But in fact, it took nearly another whole year till May the 8th, 1945, when VE Day marked the formal end of war in Europe. And during that nearly year, there was a whole bunch of different things happening. Like, on one hand, there were parties in the streets. There was peace. There were ticker tape parades because peace was assured because victory had been won. But on other streets, there were pockets of fighting. There were casualties. On one side, there was celebration. On other sides, there was still death in places because the battle hadn't fully ended. And I find that super helpful to me just because um, we also live in that moment. There are times when we look out at our world and we go, that's victory. That's to celebrate. We can give thanks for that because God's kingdom has fully come there. And then on other days, in other moments, we look out and we go, it's still dark. It's still broken. We still yearn and long for the full end of the spiritual battles. And maybe in your life, you too can recognize both of those stories that go on. I feel like so much of my life has been lived in those spaces. Um, I haven't told you many of these, but before Laura and I came to LA, we actually spent 10 years in a, in a period of incredible waiting and wrestling and preparation. I think I was, um, I was 18 when somebody said to me, I think God's going to call you one day to be a pastor. And I thought that's a terrible, awful idea, but I'll, I'll, I'll live with it. But by the time I got to some of my, my late 20s, I I'd sort of was convinced that they were right and I needed to go through this very, very detailed and very long process in England of selection, of discernment, of training. It's a 10-year process. And during that 10 years, you know, we had to wait. We had to sit. We had to sit in lectures. Had to go to seminary. Had to move three different times. We had to go through just this constant, like, like, almost like a kind of process where we weren't in control, where we didn't know what was going to come next. And even towards the end of it, we thought, okay, well, we're nearly there now. Like we're gonna, one day we're going to get to like, we're going to have control and we'd already planted churches, but we're going to actually be able to go and lead a church somewhere in a, with a vision that we have for what churches might look like. But even when we thought we were nearly there, God called us to go and serve three churches actually, uh, which were outside of London. And, and I was like, God, yeah, we're going to do this great thing. And God was like, ah, not quite yet. Because when we got there, we realized that these three churches had been through a real period of pain. And actually, that the previous pastor had suddenly left and left a lot of broken relationships, a lot of mess, a lot of stuff to be sorted. And actually, what God had called us to was not grand growth of a church. It was the painful. It was the difficult. It was the slow process of seeing relationships reconciled. And it was because of that we realized, oh, well, we're not going to be here for long. So we lived again in this space where like, we're going to be here for a year or two and then God's going to call us somewhere else. But we were like, God, we don't know now what to do. We don't know where you're going to call us. And we, we wrestled, you know. I remember just sitting in literally in the darkness of a winter, one, one winter, and just going like, God, I don't know what you're doing. I believe that one day, in five years, I remember praying, I will say that you knew what you were doing right now. 
But in the midst of it, we were lost. We didn't know. We couldn't figure it out. In fact, the lowest moment was not when like, we didn't get a job. The lowest moment was actually when someone said, we've got the perfect job for you. And it was a person we trusted. And we, we waited for the details of this job to come through. And they sent the details of the job. And I was like, that's literally the worst job in the world. <laughs> it was like worse than not being offered a job because it was such a bad job. I was like, God, we have waited for 10 years and that's the job that you want us to take? No way, that can't be right. And even though we could see God doing stuff, even so people come into faith, like we weren't there yet. I was reflecting this week that that prayer I prayed was exactly five years ago from today. It was exactly five years ago. And I didn't know that God was birthing all of this I didn't know that God was preparing us. I didn't know that God was preparing you. I didn't know God was writing a story. And that's what Advent is all about. It is about the fact that God is writing a bigger story. But in Advent, the strange and almost seemingly surprising invitation is not to rush past the waiting. It's not to pretend that it's Christmas Day already. It's not to open the presents yet but it's actually to push into the waiting. It's actually to stay in the waiting because it's sometimes in the waiting when God is doing his best work. It's sometimes in the waiting when God is preparing us and preparing our situations and healing us and getting us ready for what he wants to do next. And so as I, as I close, I'm just gonna invite us to pray in a moment because I don't know what you are waiting for I don't know what you're yearning for. I don't know what it is that you are longing for. But the invitation of Advent is to stay in the place of waiting, but not with desperation, not with anger, not with false hope, but with real hope that God is working. And so I'm just going to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. And... For the last 2,000 years, the prayer that the church has used has just been simply this. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I'm just going to invite you, wherever you are, as we just have a moment of stillness, just to use that prayer. And as you use it, remember <laughs> those who waited for, for hundreds of years for Jesus to come. As you pray it, remember that Jesus will come again one day. And as you pray it, even pray it for yourself and your families and your situations. Come, Lord Jesus. And let's just wait upon the Lord for a moment before we move on. <laughs> 